guys hey hey happy new year motherfuckers (laughs) (laughs) happy new year i'm gage and i'm ray and you should put your thinking caps on today because you're listening to gore report the one and only reports of gore yes and yes happy new year everybody if you're new here then welcome welcome we are totally glad to have you welcome to all of our weirdness welcome to all of the weird (laughs) And if you've been here, we hope that you're having a good day and a week and, and a, a good, good life. life. We always hope you're having a good life. And we love you. As long as you consent to it, of course. Because consent is important. It's very important, and don't you ever forget it. <laughs> well, we don't have a lot to unpack today, and I don't want to waste any time, because to kick today's episode off, I have brought you guys... A story that is 100% true and went full send on the nightmare fuel. Oh, God. I'm so excited, but I'm not. (laughs) It's one of the world's most morbid mysteries. It actually is. In 1959, a group consisting of nine hikers ventured into the Siberian mountains. It would be discovered that all of these hikers died extremely violent and frightening deaths. The circumstances surrounding the death of these hikers is still shrouded in mystery today. It remains unsolved. Oof. So kick back, relax, get you some snacks. And something for your anxiety. Join us as we discuss the Dyatlov Pass incident. It all begins at the Ural Polytechnical Institute, where a group of current and alumni students put together a crew to navigate and trek the Ural Mountains, which has an elevation of 1,895 meters. That's 6,217 feet. Jesus fucking Christ, that's really high. The Ural Mountains runs from north to south through western Russia, from the coast of the Arctic Ocean to the River Ural and northwestern Kazakhstan. Good job. Yeah, a little bit of geography. A little bit of geography. (laughs) (laughs) So this wasn't the typical hiking and skiing trip that you would expect for college students. Each of these members in this 10-man group were certified grade 2 hikers. And the completion of this trip would make them grade 3, which at the time was the holy grail of hiking certificates in the Soviet Union. Oh, wow. So these guys were more than experienced. Yes. Like, definitely not amateur hikers. Right. Not at all. And to get this certification, it required candidates to traverse 300 to 350 kilometers, or roughly 190 miles or more. Goodness, that is so much. So you had to be hiking. Hiking. (laughs) (laughs) And skiing. Not just hiking. Hiking. (laughs) (laughs) They were so serious about this hike, they left behind booze and cigarettes in order to avoid distractions. Oh, wait, well, that's that's dedication if I've ever seen it. I'm telling you, because I, I can't, mm-mm. I'm over here saying, if I can't have my vape, I'm not fucking going. Can I at least have my cigarettes? I'm going to be freezing my ass off walking through these mountains. Can I at least have a damn cigarette? That is pure dedication Pure right dedication. There. Pure dedication. So the goal was to reach a mountain which the Mansi tribe named Gora Otorton, which literally translates into don't go there. Oh, no. No. (laughs) I mean, I don't need much convincing to not go there, to don't go there. Absolutely fucking not. Like, what what a warning. That's a warning. That is a warning. And the track that the hikers would be taking was rated at the highest difficulty. But they remained confident, and they would be able to... Complete the journey as they were prepared and trained for these kinds of excursions. Like, they were not new to this. Oh, my goodness. These were were very smart individuals. They were outdoor survivalist type people. And I'm gathering that they had to have also been thrill seekers. Because who the hell would go to a mountain named Don't Go There? 
That's what I'm saying. You have to be a a, a seeking of something. <laughs> seeking of something. Something that I'm not seeking. I will stay right here in my bedroom where it's safe. Thank you. So this route was designed by Dyatlov's group to reach the far northern regions of Sverdlovsk Oblast and the upper streams of the Lozva River. The route was approved by the Sverdlovsk City Route Commission, which was a division of the Sverdlovsk Committee of Physical Culture and Sport, and they confirmed the group of 10 people on January 8th, 1959. So they were, you know, they had gotten their their route book from this committee. They were all ready to go. They were all grade two hikers. They had all their equipment. They had everything approved, essentially. They, yeah, they had, they were approved to go. And so think of it like, if you want to break a world record, how they send someone with you to see you complete the act. To be a witness, basically. Right. That's basically kind of what happened here. Because one of the people that I will, I'll tell you who it is, but as we get along to their names, that's when I'll let you know which one was added to the group by the committee. To basically be a witness to the feat. You, yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. So the group arrived by train at Ivdel in the early morning hours of January 25th, 1959. They then took a truck to Vizhai, which was a lorry village, which is the last inhabited settlement to the north. They spent the night there, making sure to eat and sleep, keep their energy levels up for the next day. Right, right. Yuri Yudin, which I'll get into who he is in a minute, he claims that while in this village, he overheard a conversation between someone in the village and Igor Dyatlov. He said that it sounded like Igor was being warned about something. Oh, fuck. But he couldn't make out what it was. Fuck. So maybe because of weather conditions or something else... Unfortunately, no one will know that answer. Oh, it just chills me to my bone. Uh, the imagery chills me to my bone. January Quite 27th. Literally. Now, this was the day they began their hike. Gotcha. But one day into their hike on the 28th, 21-year-old Yuri Yudin would have to turn back and leave the group. He had several health conditions, including rheumatism and congenital heart defect. Oh, wow. But... It was the pain in his knees and his joints that was unbearable, and it began to limit his mobility. And he didn't want to slow the group down, so he said goodbye to his team and headed home. And it really chills me even further thinking that that literally saved his life. Yeah. Like, that literally saved his life, and that is... Uh, yeah, it's just like those conversations that we normally have in these other episodes where you make a decision and it could either kill you or keep you alive. And this was one of those decisions. Goodness, it kept him from suffering the same fate as the rest of the group, mm -hmm. which is just terrifying to me. Lord, it's terrifying. However, before leaving, Dyatlov had agreed with Yuri that he would send a telegram to their sports club as soon as the group returned to Vizhai. It was expected that this would happen no later than the 12th of February, but Dyatlov had told Yudin before he departed from the group that he expected it to be longer. So originally, he told him, you know, about 16 days, maybe 20, depending on weather conditions and so on so forth. Yeah, you can't really put a concrete time frame on something like that. You right. Know? So right. it makes sense. It makes sense. So the departure of Yuri left the group with nine people, seven men and two women. 23-year-old Igor Dyatlov, who is said to be extremely knowledgeable and experienced, was by all accounts a well-respected leader as well. Gotcha. Following him was 21-year-old Yuri Duroshenko, 20-year-old Lyudmila Dubinina, 23-year-old Georgi Yuri Krivonoshenko, 24-year-old Alexander Kolvatov, 22-year-old Zineda Kolmogorova, 23-year-old Rustam Slavodin, 23-year-old Nikolai Tibu or Tibu Brignol, I believe, and 38-year-old Semyon Sasha Zolotaryov, who was the one added to the group. To make sure that to, they actually did the thing. Right. So he was actually involved in, I guess, the um, 
the hiking committee group, the sports club. Gotcha. Also, can we all just take a quick moment to like round of applause to Ray for pronouncing those names? <laughs> <laughs> like, good job. Good job. You did good. You did way better than what I would have oh, well, thank you. Thank you. So the diaries and cameras found around their last campsite made it possible to track the group's route up to the day before the incident. The rest remains a mystery. The black and white photographs that I've found, I have put them all together. And we will put those on our social media for you guys to check out. And as always, we put our social media at the end of the episode. Just for those of you that are new and might be wondering. Yeah. So on January 31st, the group arrived at the edge of a highland area and began to prepare for climbing. In a wooded valley, they cached surplus food and equipment that would be used for the trip back. Mm -hmm. The next day, the group traversed through what is now known as Dyatlov Pass. Oh, fuck. Fuck. The dungeon. (laughs) (laughs) It seems they planned to get over the pass and make camp for the next night on the opposite side. But because of worsening snowstorms and decreasing visibility, they lost their direction and deviated west, ending up on the eastern shoulder of Kolat Siakil, or as it was known by the local Monsi tribe, Holatachal, I believe, which translates to Dead Mountain or Mountain of the Dead. Fuck all of that. You will not be finding me. You will you will not be finding me on no dead mountain or, or the mountain of the dead. I will not be there. I will not be there. You can send me a postcard all day long, but me, my body, I will not be there. I promise. <laughs> and that is that on that. <laughs> to anyone asking me if there are any morbid wonders of the world that I would like to see, my answer to that is absolutely fucking not. <laughs> absolutely fucking not. I'm going to be at home, wrapped up in my blanket, playing Pokemon Violet. And as for the rest of you, y'all stay safe out there. I'm not about to fucking go see nothing. The big, beautiful world can be mysterious all by its fucking self. I don't need to be there to witness it. And that's that on that. When they realized their mistake that they had deviated, Dyatlov made the questionable decision to set up camp on the slope of a mountain, which is a really bad place to set up camp. If they were so qualified for this trip, how did nobody know that? Or at least it's me when I did my own research of this story, because I am familiar with Dyatlov Pass. It's just you find yourself in multiple points really questioning, like, why they did what they did. You know, like, it makes sense, but at the same time, it doesn't. And it's really hard to give an accurate gauge of what you think isn't and is logical, because, like, you know, I'm obviously not there hiking on the goddamn dead mountain. So it's really it's really hard to say, you know, but like them hiking and setting up camp on the slope is one of those things that you really, really question because it doesn't seem like that would be the most safe place, you know, to yeah, set up camp. Because they set the camp up on this slope rather than move downhill to a forested area that would have offered some sort of shelter from the weather better than being on the slope of the mountain. Yeah. Um, it's speculated by Yuri Yudin that Dyatlov didn't want to lose the elevation they were currently at. So they didn't want to go a mile downhill and then have to backtrack back up the hill a mile. Gotcha. So that's I, I what mean, that, Yuri was speculating. That that makes sense. I mean, I guess I see that. Yeah. What's the, what's the use of walking downhill when you can just stop where you're at, I guess? Right, right. <laughs> But setting up camp, for those that don't know, on the slope is a very terrible idea. Not only because avalanches are common in Siberia, but the cold will settle at the lowest point. So it already gets down to negative six degrees. But then you have that cold settling down there to the lowest point. And at night, you're looking at temperatures of negative 20 degrees So you add that extra added cold that is settling there, and it's going to make it even colder. Oh, my God. That is horrible. That is so horrible. So, yeah, if you can imagine that, that's pretty fucking cold. (laughs) Extremely fucking cold. (laughs) But seeing how they already ended up off course due to the weather, they all agreed to hunker down and wait it out. In the meantime, when February 12th passed and no messages had been received... There was no immediate reaction or panic because 
you know, loss of a few days during excursions like this were common. Again, it's like I said, you can't really put a, a concrete time frame on it. And I'm sure these people accounted for that. Yeah. So by February 20th, the traveler's relatives demanded a rescue operation. And the head of the Ural Polytechnical Institute sent the first rescue groups, consisting of volunteer students and teachers. And later, the Army and police forces became involved with planes and helicopters. Holy shit. And on the 26th, the searchers found the group's abandoned and badly damaged tent. Here's where things are going to get real spooky. Oh, no. But stay with me here, because the details of this discovery is not only bone-chilling, but ominous oh, as well. Oh, Lord. I know what's coming, and I already have the chicken legs. <laughs> My legs are already chicken legs. <laughs> At the campsite, the elongated tent that the hikers were bedded down in was found torn open and collapsed, covered in snow. Oh, my God. Investigators say that the tent was cut open from the inside. God. So these people were frantically running away from someone or something, so much so that they ran out into the cold of the night in the snow, barely dressed. Holy fucking shit. This, oh, this story gets me. It gets me. It gets me. So you have to think, what was it that they were running from with such fear that they completely disregarded their surroundings and got the fuck out of Dodge? And disregarded their shelter. Like, they ripped their own tent open. Yeah. Like, I can't even imagine. Like, the possibilities are endless, and they are terrifying. I could not imagine. Their footprints were scattered in different directions. Some of them were barefoot. Some of them had socks on. And I think only one of them had, a like, one shoe that was on the foot. Oh, my God. Oh, In my God. negative 20-degree weather. Let me remind you that these are experienced hikers. They know running out into the snow with barely anything on is not a good idea. That's what I'm saying. But for something to scare them so badly that they just said fuck all of that and did it anyways it's oh my goodness fear oh my will goodness. make you do unbelievable things and they obviously had to immediately and unexpectedly make a life or death decision do i die here or do i run away and try to survive one mile away from the tent was where the first two bodies were discovered Yuri Doroshenko and Georgi Yuri Krivonoshenko were found perfectly laid side by side, wearing only their underwear. Oh my fucking God. No shoes, nothing else, just their underwear. At no point during this trip would you ever end up in just your underwear. Absolutely not. Because you're definitely not sleeping in just your underwear because of how cold it is. Right, right. They were found under a cedar tree... Of which branches as high as 15 feet were found to be broken and cracked off. What the fuck? Like the tree was climbed on. You could definitely argue that the branches could be broken because of the elements, but investigators found human skin and blood on the bark of the tree. Holy shit. So they were climbing this tree and either fell to the ground or were somehow pulled from the tree. And with, you said, branches as high as 15 feet being broken and snapped. What in the fuck is 15 feet high that can just reach up and break a tree branch? Like, Jesus. I don't, I don't know. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Both of the men's hands were bloody messes. They were really trying to get up this tree as fast as they could. Weirder still, there were remains of a fire. So it sounded like to me that they ran away from the tent, made a fire to stay warm, and whatever they were running from came back for them, and they were trying to get up this tree in a terrified state. Oh, my God. Now, hypothermia can cause a behavior known as paradoxical undressing, mm -hmm. where the person experiencing hypothermia will remove their clothes in response to feeling like a burning warmth but actually you're dying of hypothermia yeah the nerves will take that feeling of being incredibly cold 
you know, hypothermia will basically trick the nervous system into feeling like heat is being produced. Yeah. I actually have read about that. So it's undisputed that six of the nine hikers died of hypothermia. However, others in the group appear to have acquired additional clothing from these two, which suggests that they were of sound mind to be able to say, they're dead. I need their clothes to stay warm. Yeah, right. That's what I was about to say. So they were actually thinking about adding more layers. Goodness, goodness gracious. Doroshenko had burns on the side of his head. His ears, nose, and lips were covered in blood. He had multiple abrasions and bruises on his arms, legs, and torso. There was also a foamy gray discharge that was coming from his mouth going down his cheek. What the fuck? Which at first I thought that could be purge fluid. Right, right. But doctors later said that this could be the result of something putting a tremendous amount of pressure on his chest. Oh, my God. Krivonoshenko had bruises on his forehead and left temporal bone, which forms part of the side and the base of his skull around his left ear. Bruises on his chest, legs, and hands. He had pieces of skin that he had ripped off the tops of his hands. And he had skin from those ripped areas found inside his mouth. Oh, my God. And he also had a burn on his left leg. Like he was eating his own skin. Yes. Basically, they said that, like, either he was, like, tearing his skin off the back of his hand. Jesus. I don't know. But his his skin was found in his mouth from the back of his hand. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. A little ways away, around 200 meters apart from these two bodies, they found three more bodies belonging to Igor Dyatlov, Zenaida Komogorova, and Rustin Slobodin. They were found like they were headed toward back toward the campsite, so like in between the tent and the tree. Mm-hmm. It's almost like they were running back to the tent. They were around distances of 300, 480, and 630 meters from the cedar tree. In between the cedar tree to the tent, like I said. So it's like you have the cedar tree, and you've got those two bodies there. And then, like, you're heading back to the tent. Is where you find, is these, where next you find three. these next three, like, further distances from each other. Oh, my God. So they literally were running back, it would seem. Yeah. These three also were not down to their underwear, so they had some clothes on. Okay. Dyatlov was found face up, frozen from rigor and the elements, clutching a birch branch in his hand, and his other arm was shielding his face from something. Oh, my God. God, the chills, the chills. He apparently must have been trying to fight something off with the branch. And he also had a picture of Zaneda in his pocket because they were dating. So he had no internal injuries and his cause of death was ruled hypothermia. Which I think that's absolutely mind-blowing to me. The next to be found of these three was Slobodin. He had some of the weirdest injuries. He was lying face down in the snow. He had bloody discharge from his nose. He also had weird bruises and abrasions on the right side of his face. More abrasions on the left side of his face. His skin was ripped off of his right forearm. He had bruises on the joints of both hands, indicating that he was physically fighting someone or something with his fist. He had a fracture on the frontal bone of his skull, which was really deep and seven inches long. Oh, my God. He also had hemorrhages of his temporal muscle or temporalis muscle, which are muscles you use to bite or chew with. And there was a hemorrhage that was caused in those muscles by some sort of blunt force trauma. Holy shit. During the investigation of his autopsy, they say that whatever he was hit with that caused the hemorrhage would have led to immediate loss of coordination. Oh, my God, that's so scary. Which, I mean, it definitely would have sped up the events of his death because he wouldn't have been able to try to get up to survive the hypothermia. Or walk or run or much of anything, really. Right. Jesus. For Zaneda, she was the farthest body from the rest of the group. 
she was found with blood around her body, but no one was able to discern whether it was her blood or if it came from someone else. Her cause of death was ruled hypothermia due to a violent accident. Zaneda was better dressed than the bodies under the cedar. She had two hats, a long sleeve shirt, a sweater, another shirt, and a sweater with torn cuffs. It was unclear whether she cut them off or they were torn by another person. She also had trousers, cotton athletic pants, ski pants with three small holes on the bottom. She also had three pairs of socks, no footwear, and a military mask. She had numerous bruises on her hands and palms as well as frostbite of the fingers. A long bruise that kind of encircled her on her right side. It's the best way I could describe it. It was from front to back on her side, going horizontal but not vertical. Oh my god. Almost as if something huge had grabbed her. Oh, I don't like it. I don't like it. That's not in the autopsy. That's just my own description. But... In the autopsy report, they believe this bruise to be caused from falling on rock or ice. She had swelling of the meninges, which meninges, meninges. Um, anyway, it's the basically the three layers of membranes that protect your brain and your spinal cord is what that is. And there was swelling found in that, which is an important feature of hypothermia. Gotcha, gotcha. And the head of the search party... Maslenikov sent a message to his superior comrade Sulman that stated that Kolma Gorova did in fact suffer a traumatic injury to the head. Oh my god. Take a shot every time I say, oh my god. <laughs> Unfortunately, the rescuers weren't able to recover all the bodies due to the cold. They actually had to wait until the spring to recover the rest of the group. Oh my god, that's so long. That's like months that they were out there. Yeah. Months, literal months. So they found five bodies at first, and the other four were missing. Oh my goodness, this is fucking, this is sad, this is scary. I truly hate this story. It <laughs> it it literally keeps me up at night. I have quite literally lost sleep over Dyatlov. I genuinely yeah. have. On May 4th, the remaining four members of the group, Lyudmila Dubinina, Alexander Kolovatov, and Nikolai Thibault-Brignol, and Semyon Sashin Zolotaryov. Those are the last four that they found. They were found kind of downslope from the cedar tree in sort of a deep channel. This is where it gets super weird. These last four people did not die of hypothermia. They were also wearing multiple layers of clothing. They were the best dressed considering the cold conditions and were wearing the other hikers' clothes as well. They could have quite possibly taken the clothes off the dead. Maybe that's why Doroshenko and Kravonashenko were laying side by side in their underwear. Mm -hmm. These four actually dug themselves into the ground and made what's referred to as the den. And I'm sure they did this to try to keep warm. They actually took branches from the cedar tree and put them around themselves to close themselves up in these in this hole. Either they each had their own individual hole, but what I've heard is that it's just one big hole called the den. That they tried to lay in. Yeah, they dug it down into the ground to try to minimize their contact with the snow. Goodness And as gracious. far as the branches, maybe that was to help protect, like to break the wind or offer some sort of protection or camouflage. And what's interesting is they actually had time to do all this. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. All of these people clearly weren't killed at the same time. The timeline of events is wild and just elusive at this point because they definitely did not die in just one event. Yeah, that's there was what I'm more saying. than one event, but they were basically trying to minimize their contact and stay warm. That's where we're at. They also appeared to have started a fire. To stay warm as well. And that takes time to build. Absolutely. Especially in those conditions. Goodness gracious. I couldn't imagine. So I don't see them running away from something and trying to build a fire at the same time. That makes no sense. Exactly. Exactly. 
During the autopsies of these four, the examiner stated that all four of them had internal injuries comparable to being in a car crash. Good God. There was a considerable amount of force to cause these injuries. All four of these hikers had their chest crushed inward from some sort of immense pressure. Holy shit. And the presiding doctor that did the autopsy, his name was Dr. Boris Vazrozdany, I believe. Mm -hmm. So Zolotaryov had crushed ribs and a crushed in chest. Everything in his chest was broken. Massive internal damage. But no soft tissue damage or bruising. Which is fucking wild. Massive damage to the ribs and chest, but no bruising and no damage to the soft tissue on his chest. What can do that? That is literally, oh my god, that is so scary. To have that severe uh, internal damage, to literally have your entire chest cavity crushed. And there to be not one bit of, like, light tissue damage. That is absolutely crazy. He had five broken ribs on both sides of his body, and his chest was crushed inward. That makes absolutely zero sense. He had an open wound on the side of his head with exposed bone, and he was also missing his eyes. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So not only did something put enough pressure on his chest to crush it, but it took his eyes, too. Oh, my God. Either, like, the pressure from his chest being crushed in maybe forced his eyes to pop out or, like, they were gouged out. It's, like, one of the two. And either way, it's fucking terrifying. But, Jesus. But, I mean... You could sit there and think, oh, well, maybe it was a, you know, like a Siberian bear or something like that that lives out there. But there were no bite marks. Yeah. There's no animal bite marks on any of the body. If an animal had done that, then it wouldn't be so cut and clean. Yeah. Like, for sure. And during the autopsy report, they mentioned that both Zolotaryov and Dubinina had very similar injuries in direction and force despite the differences in shape, height, and body composition of the two. This would suggest that whatever caused these injuries, they were not caused by a single event, consistent with an avalanche. Yeah, there's no way. There's no way. Zolotaryov was also found with a camera under his neck. Um, He was somewhat in water, and this camera basically was underwater for three months. That is insane. Because it was his, it was around his neck, but he was kind of like... Face down. Yeah, sort of. If he was running out of the tent in a frenzy, and this is what my mind can't seem to comprehend. If he's running out of the tent in a frenzy, how did he have time to grab it? And why would he grab it at all? The camera. Yeah, I mean, it's like I was saying earlier, you will find yourself... As you learn details of this story, you're really going to ask yourself, like, why? Why did these people do what they did? Like, what caused them to do this? And him grabbing the camera amongst whatever else he had, that's just another one of those things. You know, I ask myself, why? You have nine people. There's really not an answer for that. Nine people scared to death, running for their lives. They didn't grab knives or anything to defend themselves. And he grabs his camera. Do you think maybe, and I know this is like hardcore just speculating, but do you think maybe that there was some sort of evidence on that camera in terms of what was happening to them? And maybe he thought in his mind, well, you know, if I'm about to die, if I get found with this, maybe I can tell the story of what happened. Like, I know that's far-fetched as fuck to think that way, but it's just it's just one of the many questions that I but have. But here's where it gets even weirder. As it turns out, this camera is a mystery in itself. Yuri Yudin stated that he had never seen that camera before. What? And he was with them, so he would know what equipment they had. So this camera that was found was not brought with them initially? Um, it either was not brought with them initially or it was hidden. Gotcha. That would make sense. That just, woo, the goosebumps. <laughs> you know. That just gave me fucking chills. Like I said, he was with them. I think he would know. They obviously had cameras with them on this trip. That's how we have pictures of everyone. But Yuri said that camera was a hidden camera. He'd never seen it before. 
That at all. is so chilling. So why would he need to hide a camera from the rest of the group when they all had their own cameras and diaries? Even that doesn't make sense. Yeah, that is, again, like just chills because that doesn't make any sense. A lot of this doesn't make any sense. Investigators claim that the film was damaged from the water that Zolotaryov was found near. There was a running stream close to the den that they created. So they're saying the film is damaged. But I feel there was something on that camera that had evidence of something these investigators were trying to keep quiet. But we'll get into theories and such later. Gotcha, gotcha. Dubonina was found with her head tilted back and her mouth open wide like she was screaming. Oh, shit. Situated against what looks like rocks or exposed dirt next to a stream where she was found in a kneeling position. She was wearing a hat, a short sleeve shirt, a long sleeve shirt, two sweaters, underwear, long socks, two pairs of pants, and the outer pair of pants was burnt by fire. What in the fuck? She had on two pairs of socks and then cut up a sweater and wrapped it around her feet to try to keep her feet warm. Her injuries were the worst and the sketchiest out of all of them. Oh my god. There was soft tissue damage, but that also could be from frostbite. But she had missing soft tissue on her face. What? Her face was damaged around her eyes, eyebrows, left temporal area, which was down to the bone. She was also missing her tongue. Oh, my God. And several sources say that it looked like it had been torn out. Oh, holy shit. Her eyes were missing as well. So her tongue and her eyes were all missing, along with a completely broken nose. Her nose was broken so bad it was flattened. Oh my, holy shit, that literally just made me so sick. Four ribs broken on the right side and six ribs broken on her left side. Her upper lip was gone. Like gone? Exposing her teeth and gums. She had a massive hemorrhage in her right atrium of her heart, a huge bruise on her left thigh, and her stomach had about 100 grams of coagulated blood in it. Which means her heart was pumping and her blood was flowing when her tongue was ripped out of her mouth. Jeez. Oh. She was... Oh. She was still alive when her tongue got ripped out. Oh, my God. Oh, my fucking God. The official cause of death was from the heart hemorrhage. It was that massive. So I wonder if the pain of having her tongue and eyes ripped out was... So great that it put a considerable amount of stress on her body to cause that hemorrhage, you know? I mean, it would it would make sense. I mean, it would make sense. That's what made sense to me. That's I literally just... couldn't even imagine this. Like, again, I know I said it in uh, last week's episode when I did Krista Pike, and yeah. I've said it a few other times, but this is really a story that's so hard to grasp that it is real. They said that, that this actually happened. They said that her tongue... Obviously, had been ripped out almost like to the root of where her tongue begins. Oh, my. Oh, my God. Oh, my So, like, pulling on the tongue out until it rips out. Fuck. Fuck, bro. So, moving on. Kolvatov had a broken nose and a deformed neck. There's not that much information on him besides that. Thibaut Brignol had multiple fractures in his temporal bone, a big bruise on his upper lip, And a hemorrhage in his broken forearm. Which is interesting because I had no clue you could hemorrhage there. Yeah, I didn't either. I was just sitting here like, wait, what? Yeah. What in the So apparently the doctor ruled out any type of accidental fall to cause that break because it was broken in such a strange way. Like a way to where it looked purposefully broken versus accidentally broken. Yeah. The cameras found with the group's belongings has pictures of their journey up to this point. The last photo taken was of the group and everything looked normal. There was nothing off about these photos. Yeah, when I saw these pictures, it absolutely put me in the biggest pit of anxiety. (laughs) It's so chilling to look at them. It's so chilling. 
one of the cameras went missing. Oh, shit. But that's not the only thing that went missing. Yuri Yudin testified that Alexander Kolvatov kept a journal with him at all times. He was always writing in this diary of his. The diary has never been found either. It's never been recovered. Right. What the fuck? It makes you wonder. It really makes you wonder. Yeah, so is it coincidence that these things are missing? Or did someone take these things from there hoping to cover up what really happened? I mean, it wouldn't surprise me. Either way, just saying. Yeah. One theory suggests that they stumbled upon an area where the Soviet Union was doing nuclear weapons testing. Mm -hmm. There's a perfectly good theory because these hikers were probably seeing some strange shit leading up to their death. Yeah, I mean, it would be safe to assume that. And that may be a reason why the camera and diary went missing, but the Soviet Union actually covered this incident up for several years before it was released to the public. Yeah, if I'm, I could be wrong about this, but didn't the Soviet government literally like close down this path, like to where people couldn't go to it? Like it was genuinely like a closed off area. Yeah. For some time after the incident took place. Yeah, it was. A supporting factor to this theory happened at the funeral for these hikers. People mentioned that the bodies had a strange orange like tan to their skin and their hair was turning gray. What? It could be just hearsay, so keep that in mind. But here's another supporting factor to this theory. The clothes on some of the bodies contained very high levels of radiation. Oh, yeah, I did read that. Oh, shit. Yeah. So there's a head scratcher for you. And was it the area, like the area itself that they were discovered in, did the area test positive for high levels of radiation no. it was just the it was clothes. just the clothes oh that's so weird that now, is literally so weird why would they test these bodies for radiation in the first place that's suspicious i mean right right there's a whole lot of that is this... not a routine thing that happens in an investigation yeah yeah very true this is one of those things that are just like what the fuck so they knew something they had to have known something because that doesn't make any sense. No, it does not. However, radioactive dispersal would have affected all of them, not just some. And the skin and hair discoloration can be explained by a natural process of mummification after like three months of exposure to the cold and the wind. Yeah, I was about to say, because half of those bodies were out there for months, like months and months before they were found. You right. Know? And this theory is supported by Yuri Yudin. At least, this is what he thinks happened. He thinks the hikers stumbled into this testing area and were murdered or taken out with these weapons that they were testing. So, like an impromptu human trial test for these weapons, apparently. What the fuck? What in the fuck? Because the investigation of the group was very hurried and very secretive and that could also explain the missing camera and diary mm -hmm. the soviet government doesn't even want us discussing it they don't want people digging into it they closed that mountain for three years after this incident yeah i mean it makes sense because like our government does that yeah our government does shit like this like they know so much more than what they ever want to let on that they know, and more than what they would ever want the public to know that they know. I always say that life is stranger than fiction. There are so many instances, especially instances that we cover on this podcast, mm -hmm. that are strange and weird and unexplained. So take from that what you will. I mean, I think that's a theory that has a little bit of weight to it, personally. That's yeah. just me. It's only mere speculation, but you can't help but wonder. Yeah, not to mention, when Yuri Yudin was looking through items that were recovered from the site, he noticed a torn bit of fabric that looked like it came from a soldier's uniform or coat. What? No fucking way. I did not know that about this case. They also found a pair of glasses and skis that didn't belong to any of the hikers. So that is almost like concrete proof that other people were out there. Yeah. What the fuck, bro? He also testified that he saw paperwork that said the official investigation began two weeks before the discovery of the camp. So they actually either found the camp 
two weeks earlier and kept it hushed up. But either way, they had two weeks ahead jump time on this investigation. That's so weird. Why? That is weird. That is so weird. So what kind of weapon could they be testing? You know, there's theory that they were testing some sort of infrasound weapon, which could cause internal injuries without damaging the soft tissue. Right, right. It would cause panic, discoordination, sickness, and... Like paranoia and stuff. Yeah. Which that could explain why they cut their own tents open trying to get away. Like that whole state of madness could have been induced by that. Or even the one that had bit skin off the back of his hand. Right, right. Because, I mean, a lot of these injuries, especially the really severe ones that were found, how could a... There's just no way that that's human-inflicted wounds. Yeah. Like, there's no way that a human could hurt another human in a manner to which the damage would reflect a fucking car accident, like a traumatic car accident. I just don't see that being possible. I could be wrong, but in the scope of my brain... You have to wonder, like, what else was at play here? Yeah. What else was what's, what else was being done here? Like, that's that's the part that, like, kind of kills me. Because, like, with Dubonina, her eyes were missing and her fucking eyebrows were cut off. Like, like her, they were gone. And wasn't her top lip missing, too? Her and, top lip was gone. Her tongue was gone. Jesus, 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 Jesus. So, here's another theory for you. And this one's going to make you dismiss it more than likely, but... It's going to make sense in a minute of why this is a theory regarding this case. Aliens. Hey, I'm going to look. I'm going to go ahead and say it. I don't care if you guys laugh at me. Whatever. I am a firm believer in aliens, Mm -hmm. cryptids. I truly believe that humans are nowhere near the most advanced life in this universe there's just no fucking way like so i believe that i actually could see that being true i believe in that shit wholeheartedly i really do humans are the only ones arrogant enough to think that we are the only living intelligent beings in this entire universe and that is so far from the truth that is so far from the truth so i i mean hey laugh at me all you want I believe that. I believe that could be true. So, <laughs> I'm just going to go ahead and say that. Looking into the alien theory, this happened between when they found the first set and when they had to wait for the snow and the ice to thaw. Mm-hmm. A group of rescuers were searching the area to see if they could find the other bodies. And on March 31st, they saw glowing, pulsating lights in the sky. One of them said, quote, It happened early in the morning when it was still dark. Victor, who stood guard that night, left the tent and saw a large glowing sphere in the sky. He woke everyone up. He watched this orb or disc for about 20 minutes until it disappeared behind the mountain. Or we saw it in the southeast direction from our tent and it was moving in a northern direction. This event freaked everyone out and we're sure it had something to do with the death of the Dyatlov group. Holy fuck. These orbs were seen in January, February, and March by students, geologists, rescuers, local military, and even members of the Monsi tribe. Oh my god. So this isn't just like one sighting being reported. Like several people are seeing this. Yes. Several people are witnessing the same phenomenon. In early April, several testimonies were taken from local soldiers who said they saw UFOs on February 17th at 6.40 a.m. They all described them as the same thing, slow, pulsating orbs that were moving from south to north in a cloud of dust or fog. Now, that's oddly specific to be a lie, you know? Yeah, I was about to say not only oddly specific to be a lie, but... Oddly specific for not just one, but multiple people. Yeah. To say that they saw that exact same thing. That's. I, I mean, don't know. I don't know. I could fucking believe it to be true. I just know that. Well, I'm squidward. Well, I'm fucking nervous. <laughs> so the guy that was in charge of the investigation named Lev Ivanov gave an interview in the early 90s and told the reporter that him and another investigator noticed that the pine trees in the area were burned on the tops of them. On the tops of them? Yeah, so on the top of the trees in that area, it was burned. What the 
fuck? He also stated that a member of the Soviet Union Congress made him take every reference of UFOs out of documented reports. But why? They redacted all of it. That's definitely a sign of their wanting to cover some shit up. They even had drawings from the Monsi hunters of these bright lights and every scrap of evidence revolving UFOs were taken out. Why, though? Again, the only thing that makes sense of that is a government wanting to hide truth from its people. Yeah. Because, again, I have no shame in saying it. Our government does that shit ruthlessly all the time, and it's not... It's not being a conspiracy theorist because conspiracy implies that it's done in secret. It is no secret that our government hides shit from no, us all they the do time. It, they do it right in front of our face all the time. You know, that doesn't breach that line of, oh, was this just, you know, I did too many mushrooms and this is conspiracy theory. Like, no, it's blatant, blatantly done in front of our faces. Yeah. So another theory is that the Monsi tribe attacked these people for being on sacred land. This theory doesn't hold up because although they were on Mansi land, they were not in sacred lands. True. And the government could possibly cover that up if it did happen to prevent a war from breaking out on the Mansi people. Very true. But even more so, the question I ask with that, or at least in my mind, why that theory doesn't have any weight to me is like the severity of the injuries. There's no fucking way that was caused by human hands alone. Well, not to mention the fact, why would they attack these people for being on their land when this is a route that was set up? It was it was planned set up by the Monsi people in assistance with the committee that they were part of. Oh yeah. Well that point plus my point. Yeah. There's no fucking way. And the Monsi people also assisted in the search and rescue. So how does that make sense? None of that makes sense. None of that makes sense. I think that's just grasping at straws at that point. I mean, I'm just telling you like there's, there's too much going on with this. They also tried to say that an avalanche was responsible for the deaths of the hikers, which, come on, an avalanche doesn't rip eyeballs and tongues out. No, it damn sure doesn't. And if it did, then even more so, fuck you, Dead Mountain. I will not be there. I will not have an avalanche ripping nothing out of me. Nothing. There was also a photo before the event, and there was a ski pole sticking up in the snow. And the pictures taken after the event showed that ski pole was still there. What the fuck? There was a thin layer of snow on top of the hikers and the tent. And if it was an avalanche, that wouldn't have been the case. No, definitely not. <laughs> the pole would be gone. Everything would be wiped out. You wouldn't be able to find bears. Everything would have been avalanched away. Right. Definitely so. On top of the fact, like, you can see their footprints And they were moving about like you're not digging your way out of an avalanche with broken ribs and a crushed in chest. You're just not doing it. Yeah, there's no way. Now we have to address the Yeti theory. Ooh, which I don't know why, like this theory, along with the government, you know, being responsible and doing something. Those theories combined scare me the most out of any out of any of them. You know, me being a firm believer And not only government conspiracy, but cryptids and, you know, mythology and creatures that are beyond our understanding. It scares me. And somehow in my mind, the Yeti theory makes the most sense. Or or at least makes the most sense out of a situation where there literally is no sense. Well, here's some stuff to support that. There was a newspaper that was circulating in Vis High. Like they have their own evening little newsletter. Mm Mm-hmm. And the headline was something to the effect of, now we know the snowmen are real. Like the headline in an article released after this incident. Yeah, it was published after the incident. Now we know the snowmen are real. Yeah, that's a whole lot of fuck that for me and for the second time. Whoa, whoa, I'm squirming. Wow, that makes me nervous. That makes me so nervous, right? I can't even explain to you how nervous it makes me. I could just literally fucking cry. <laughs> Sorry, uh. Oh, uh, excuse me. If you've been listening to us for a while, you know Squidward just comes in and comes out of our episodes. I'm sorry. He took the wheel there for a second, but I'm back. <laughs> I'm back and ready to discuss more of this Yeti theory. So maybe the government was trying to hide that the Yeti exists, but the Monsi do believe in what's called a Menk, M E N K, which is a formidable forest spirit. 
The Monsi that helped in the search and rescue were visibly upset and nervous at the site. Oh, my God. They were also plagued with an attack on some caribou weeks before this event. So it solidified it for them that the mink were about and causing havoc. Oh, my God. And the mink is basically like like a forest angry snowman kind of kind of theory like an angry yeti yeah oh fuck that the american embassy in nepal sent a document to the department of state in washington and it was entitled regulations covering mountain climbing expeditions in nepal relating to yeti what that was on a government document what in the Fuck, bro. And it contained three regulations that climbers should be, should abide by in the event they encounter a Yeti. But I couldn't find what those regulations were. However, the National Archives Museum is now displaying a 1959 U.S. State Department memo filed from the American Embassy in Kathmandu that lists these three rules. One. Royalty of 5,000 rupees, I believe, Indian currency, which will have to be paid to His Majesty's Government of Nepal for a permit to carry out an expedition in search of Yeti. Number two, in case Yeti's traced, it can be photographed or caught alive, but must not be killed or shot at except in an emergency arising out of self-defense. All photographs taken of the animal, the creature itself, if captured alive, or must be surrendered to the government of Nepal. What the fuck? News and reports throwing light on the actual existence of the creature must be submitted to the government of Nepal as soon as they are available and must not in any way be given out to the press or reporters for publicity without the permission of the government of Nepal. And the date on that document is November 30th, 1959. So the same year that this happened. Yes. February 2nd, 2008. And this is the last little bit of pre-documented theories that I have. Uh, the Ural Polytechnical Institute, along with the Dyatlov Foundation, six surviving members of the search party, and 31 technical experts put together an investigation where they reviewed all the evidence again. Mm-hmm. They concluded that the deaths were likely the unintended result of a secret military test. Holy literally, the goosebumps I have... On my body right now. Now what, the theory that I have about all this, because I don't know, it seems a little strange how, one, you have this group, the two-man group that was over here with the fire and trying to get up the tree and all this other stuff. Mm -hmm. I don't know, man. Like, obviously they must have died first, and then someone came, disclosed them. Mm-hmm. They shared the clothes. And then, I don't know, but obviously, Dyatlov was trying to save both of the other people that were running to the tent. With him, yeah. Yeah, because he was he had a birch branch in his hand trying to fight something off, mm-hmm. and he shielded his face from something. So yeah. there's also um, conjecture floating around. That there were some sort of flash bombs that I guess were being tested in that area where these bombs would explode in the air and the concussion of it would like push downward. You know, there was speculation that that could have caused some sort of mini avalanche or maybe that's where the burns had come from on the trees and on the people. Like, yeah, true. I can see that making sense. Yeah, there was something having to do with that, but I didn't put much theory into it because, one, the aliens one makes sense. <laughs> it really does. The Yeti one makes sense. And then the government but doing even, something to hide this definitely makes sense, That too. one definitely makes sense. But then what doesn't make sense to me is if it was a Yeti that, like, was 
hitting these people in the chest and caving their chest inward. There would be tissue damage. There would be tissue damage. There would be literal tissue damage. So the fact that there's no tissue damage also supports the infrasound theory. And it's just all of these theories, little bitty pieces here and there, like there's evidence of all of them. And that's what makes this case so scary. Yeah, definitely. There was even something that I saw that I guess was documented that two of the guys had left the tent beforehand to look at what was going on in the sky. Yeah. And then all of a sudden something happened. And then hell broke loose, basically. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense, too. It's like you literally just said there are little bits of evidence in all of these theories that really, really make sense. And it's fucking, you know, it's scary. Your mind can really wander with this one. Yeah, and my mind wandered so far that I was like, well, you know, obviously people know that the government, there have been human experiments way back when. Oh, in yeah. In the 50s, in the 60s. Even earlier. Yeah, so there have been human experiments. Mm-hmm. And my question is is I wonder if one of these human experiments was released onto these people to see what type of damage it could inflict. Like a super soldier experiment or something like that, maybe. I mean, I see it. I fucking see it. It definitely, it has, and I say it has to, in my mind it has to, it has to parallel somewhat into the supernatural side because you take the sheer severeness of the injuries And a lot of these injuries, like you said, the whole chest being caved in, but there being no tissue damage. So that rules out physical impact or physical blows or or things that would damage tissue. So was this, like you said, infrasound? Was it some kind of telekinetic power even? Yeah. Like Like what? That's where my mind went to. That's where my mind goes with this because no human physically could do this. You know what I'm saying? I just don't see that as possible. I did hear something about, I believe it's the right person, Kravonashenko. It's either Kravonashenko or Kolvatov, one of the two. But there was some sort of nuclear power plant disaster that happened where one of the hikers in this group was part of that cleanup crew. But what doesn't make any sense is, you know, because he was an engineer. It was one of the two. It was mm-hmm. He was an engineer. And he would know not to keep clothes that you're wearing when you're cleaning up nuclear waste because of the radiation. Right, right. So how was only one of the person's clothes covered in radiation and everybody else is just kind of like, That how? is fucking scary. That is fucking scary. There really is no answer for that. It's just an endless wheel of horrific speculation. So the most horrific thing out of this, and I think for me, Dubonina's like just took the cake. Who the fuck takes eyeballs and a tongue? You know what I mean? Yeah, it's fucking insane. And what's nuts to me is like with her upper lip missing, like obviously the upper lip was part of the trauma when the tongue was taken out. It had to have been. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's what I'm thinking because this wasn't just... A tongue cut or something like that. Her tongue was literally ripped, ripped out. from the root. Ripped out. Like ripped from the root. Like I. It was not a clean cut. It was ripped out. Ugh, fuck. That concludes the Dyatlov Pass incident. And I hate it. I hate all of it. Like what an episode for the start of the new year. Yes. That was honestly really, really, I mean, fun. Not fun. Did we make that one fun? I don't feel like we made that one fun. Uh, that one was really visceral. And not just fun. Not fun. Not nice. Not nice. <laughs> but honestly, <laughs> our famous saying, I'll say it strong here in the new year, you have done the damn thing. And I am so thrilled that the damn thing is done. <laughs> Truly, I am. I hate this story with all my heart. <laughs> it makes me so uncomfortable. And honestly, I'm like super happy you're spending the night with me tonight because us recording some shit like this and then expecting me to sleep by myself, bitch, no. He will not be sleeping. I will not be sleeping. I will not be doing anything. So, you know, I'm glad you get to stay with me after this. Well, like I stated earlier in the episode, 
the pictures that I have from the cameras, they're 100% real. We are putting them on our socials for you to go check out. So you can go get creeped out even more. And I also included the picture of the document talking about the Yetis. Oh, shit. Yeah. I'm going to have to look at those. Yeah. I kind of want to see so them. So it's just one page, but it's basically like, that's it. I want to see That's it. it. I want to see it. And the it. fact that it was like government documented makes me terrified of being out in the woods. <laughs> no shit. So thanks everyone for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed our first episode of the new year. And again, for the third time, happy, happy new, year. new year. And if you would like to follow me and Ray and all of our weird, well, we got great news for you. You can definitely do that. You can find us on Facebook at Gore Report, a true crime podcast. On Instagram at Gore Report Podcast. And on Twitter at Gore Report. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'm definitely ready to get the fuck off of here. This made me extremely uncomfortable. I never want to see snow or frost or any cold environment ever again. I do not plan on hiking or doing any of the sort. And again, you will not find me on Dead Mountain. I'm going to be in my bedroom. So until next time, bye. bye. Are you afraid? You should be. You should be.